This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. On September 2, 1945, Japan surrendered to the United States, ending the Second World War. Yet the Japanese invasion upended the old geopolitical structures of European empires, leaving old imperial powers on the decline and new groups calling for independence on the rise. That unsteady situation sparked a decade of conflict in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in China, and in Korea, as esteemed military historian Professor Ronald Spector writes about in his latest book, A Continent Erupts, Decolonization, Civil War, and Massacre in Postwar Asia, published by W.W. W. Norton. Ronald Spector, Professor Emeritus of History and National Relations at George Washington University, is the author of seven books, including Eagle Against the Sun, The American War with Japan, and In the Ruins of Empire, The Japanese Surrender, and The Battle for Postwar Asia. Today, Ronald and I talk about the decade of conflict following the Second World War and whether those conflicts were inevitable in the post-colonial Cold War world. So, Ronald, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about A Continent Erupts. You know, perhaps it's easiest to kind of start at the beginning, um, you know, the, the period you cover uh, begins with the end of the Second World War in Asia, um, you know, after the the Japanese have um, both, well, first radically changed the order of things in Asia and then defeated by and then were defeated by the Americans. Um, you know, what was the state of Asia of kind of the Asian political order uh immediately after the Second World War. Why was it so... What what made it so unstable? Uh, well, the old order uh, in Asia, which basically uh, had been characterized by almost complete colonization of everything east of Suez, uh, had been completely uh, upset by the sudden Japanese conquest of uh, all of these countries, with the exception of India, all of these countries which had been either colonies of Europe or uh, strongly under European domination, such as China, uh, all of that disappeared very suddenly in 1941 and for early 42 when uh, the Japanese just very rapidly rolled over uh, Southeast Asia, and they had already uh, 
conquered uh, a good deal uh, of China so that when the war ended, uh, there was really um, no settled system in Asia. The people living in various parts of Asia were not very enthusiastic about returning to the old order. Uh, the Europeans, most of them would have liked to reinstate the old colonial system, but they were not in a situation where they could do so. They were economically devastated by the effects of World War II. So uh, it was a completely different world from what it had been in 1941. You know, it's, 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 um, it's interesting you bring up the Europeans, because uh, that's a good segue to my next question. You know, in, in reading the book, especially the bits on um, the conflict in Indonesia and the conflict in Vietnam, um, it vaguely always seems like the Europeans, whether it's the Dutch or the French, um, or even other just other European powers, uh, I don't know the best word to use, whether it's they seem really bullheaded about their colonies, they seem really boneheaded about their colonies. It seems like there are plenty of... They, they never seem quite able to uh, either offer enough concessions or some uh, or, or someone very aggressive comes in charge and, and derails all these negotiations. Um, I guess, why were the Europeans so unwilling to compromise or, or compromise en- enough when it came to their colonies? Well, I think the main... Uh problem that they had, although they certainly weren't aware of it, is that uh, they hadn't really uh, made any preparations or uh, instituted any significant changes during the 1920s and 30s when they could have. Uh, They might have followed the pattern uh, of the British in India, who allowed uh, a significant amount of uh, political activity uh, by uh, the Indians themselves and uh, were gradually uh, implementing various means of uh, local self-government in India. The Dutch and the French could have followed the same pattern, uh, but uh, they didn't. Uh, and so uh, it was very difficult for them uh even if they were so inclined to to suddenly create uh, a self-governing uh, entity to replace their colonies, uh, one that would have been very friendly to them and would have kept up all the old uh, existing economic relationships. Of course, they weren't inclined to do that anyway. They simply needed Uh, to get back into their old colonies because they uh, were in dire economic straits themselves. So they wanted to get back to the old order uh, as quickly as possible. So the the book covers, I believe, four conflicts. You can forgive me if I've I've, I've missed one, but it covers conflicts like uh, Indonesia and Vietnam, which are kind of post-colonial conflicts. independence conflicts. There's the Chinese Civil War, which is, as its name implies, kind of a, a civil war between the nationalists and the, and the Communist Party. Uh, there's the Korean War, which is 
um, kind of a, a de facto international conflict. Um, but kind of what what kind of connects all of these? Are 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 these different conflicts kind of connected by the same? theme is the wrong word, but kind of connected by the same pressures, inspired by the same, I guess, structural problems. Uh, what kind of connects all of these, all of these well, Asian conflicts? What I argue in the book is it's not, they're not simply uh, anti-colonial wars or wars for independence. Uh, these are all, uh, they don't, they don't necessarily take the same shape, but they are all uh, civil wars in nature. Uh, they either begin as civil wars or they develop into civil wars or uh, they are both international and civil wars uh, at uh, the same time. So in all of these, all of these conflicts, you have uh, the native population, the local population, uh, is usually split uh, between at least two uh, two sides, and at the same time, the two sides in in a lot of cases have to confront uh, the former colonial powers, and uh, they also have to confront the uh, developing uh, U.S. Soviet uh, tensions uh, that are growing out of uh, developments in Europe and the Middle East. And in many cases, the various sides in the Civil War want to take advantage of these uh, U.S.-Soviet rivalries to get uh, one of the great powers on their side uh, to help them uh, win their particular local struggle uh, for control of their uh, newly independent or uh, what they hope will soon be independent uh, countries. So I, I want to ask about the, the Chinese civil war, specifically kind of the relationship between the, the whether real or perceived, um, the kind of the U.S. relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I remember when I was studying this in, in high school, uh, a while ago, um, you know, everyone was always surprised by, uh, I believe it was the Dixie mission, you know, the, the mission to Yan'an in the Second World War, which, you know, led to some pretty glowing, uh, glowing descriptions of, of the CCP at the time. Uh, I know during the Civil War, immediately afterwards, there's a lot of uh, accusations that it was people like people like them, these kind of CCP sympathizers in the State Department that stopped America from really supporting the nationalists uh, in the Chinese Civil War. And then everyone feels like forgot about that narrative, only to be kind of revived in later later historical discussions of the Civil War. But I guess kind of what's your, you know, given your research and your understanding of the history, kind of what's your view of, um, I guess, of, of the CCP and whether uh, the U.S., should have, could have, uh, more forcefully, well, either more forcefully pushed for a negotiated solution or um, actually have helped the nationalists defeat the CCP. Kind of what's your view of the, of, well, uh, of that conflict? Well, at the end of the Second World War in China, uh, very few Chinese wanted to have another war right after that. Uh, and, uh, 
certainly the Americans uh, never expected that there would be uh, another full-scale war within a year or two. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, the real explanation is that the leaders uh, of the two sides, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, uh, were just determined uh, to duke it out. They were determined uh, to have a showdown for uh, control of China. They didn't see, from their point of view, any alternative, uh, even though very few other people uh, wanted to see uh, a war. I think they did. And that that's really the explanation for uh, how you could possibly have had uh, another full-scale war uh, breakout in China just a year or so after uh, the Japanese uh, surrender. The U.S., of course, tried to uh, prevent something like this happening. They sent the President Truman sent the Marshall Mission to China, uh, but that uh, was was unsuccessful uh, because. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, felt that he could, this was his great opportunity to destroy uh, the Chinese communists and he wasn't going to let anybody get in the way of that. And on their part, the Chinese communists felt they couldn't possibly trust uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, besides that, uh, they weren't going to give up the gains that they had made uh, during uh, the Second World War, so that uh, the Chinese Civil War, I think you can say, really started at the top. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of wars start uh, with uh, not uh, very significant incidents, and then uh, they rapidly escalate into something. But in the case of the Chinese Civil War, I think it's really uh, the two top leaders and uh, their advisors and followers who make this uh, decision that they're going to fight it out. So I, I, I want to pivot now to the to the two. Um, anybody use the word in, independence conflicts? Even though I think, as you as you note, they're all kind of they're not purely civil wars. They're part of this larger historical conversation. But anyway, um, but the wars in in Vietnam and Indonesia and um, you know, in both of those cases, uh, but I think especially in Vietnam, you have a uh, you have a local nationalist independence movement um, ultimately defeating kind of a uh, more advanced uh, a more advanced country, whether it's the Dutch or the French, um, ostensibly backed by uh, mm. backed by Europe, backed by the U.S. Um, but they're both defeated. Kind of, kind of what. How were these groups able to defeat, uh, I guess, defeat their, um, defeat their, I guess, eventually former uh, colonial masters? Uh, well, uh, one thing that they did is they uh, managed to recruit uh, powerful friends. Uh, once the communists won <clears throat> the civil war in China, then they uh were willing to help out uh, the Viet Minh uh, in uh, Vietnam. Uh, 
at the same time, uh, the French, uh, who were expected to form a, a key part of the new NATO alliance, uh, succeeded after uh, a couple of years of trying, succeeded in persuading the Americans to uh, help them out in Indochina. Uh, and so uh, the reason that the war uh, took the form, the war in Indochina took the form that it did after 1950 was that uh, both sides are uh, receiving uh, modern weapons and training, uh, which enables them to go on and, and fight the war uh, at an even more deadly level than they had uh, in the first uh, three years of the conflict. So I want to ask now about Korea. Um, I know I know the book covers the whole Korean War, but one interesting historical event that I had not read before, and you kind of tie into uh, this whole conflict. I think you call it the First Korean War at times. Is the um, is what happens in Jeju when uh, when the South Korean government sends troops to kind of quell an anti uh, sorry quell a communist uprising on the island. I wonder if you might talk about what happens on Jeju and why you have characterized that in your book sometimes as the kind of first Korean war. Uh, well, uh, the conflict on Jeju is, is I didn't mean to imply that it was the whole of the first mm. Korean war. The first Korean war, uh, takes place between, uh, for about 1946 and, uh, 1950, uh, and it's waged, in, in South Korea between uh, the South Korean Labor Party, uh, the South, uh, which is basically uh, a branch of the uh, Communist Party, and their sympathizers. Uh, they also had uh, help from various other uh, left-leaning uh, parties. And uh, then Sigmund Rhee, and uh, his political allies, and uh, Rhee was not terrifically popular in the South, but uh, he did have the support of many uh, people from North Korea, uh, who, uh, including landowners and uh, businessmen and so on, who had felt that they had to flee uh, when uh, Kim Il-sung's regime takes over. Uh, and so all of these uh, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, sometimes you might say millions of people, uh, sort of come and they're, they're, most his, they're his, among his most loyal supporters, uh, along with uh, upper-class landowners and businessmen in the South and uh, a lot of uh, Christians and Christian institutions in the South, uh, so that uh, there's kind of constant uprisings and guerrilla warfare uh, all through South Korea uh, between about 1940, the end of late 46 and uh, late 49. Uh, and this uh, warfare uh 
claims uh, thousands of lives. And in the Jeju is one of the most extreme cases where uh, a good percentage of the civilian population uh, died in the, uh, the, the uprising on Jeju, which I think, as I remember, takes place uh, in uh, mostly in 48, 49. You know, throughout this whole period, the U.S. seems to play kind of an unsure and uncertain role in a lot of these conflicts. If it's not, I mean, at, at times it becomes an active participant, as it does in, in Korea. Um, but, you know, it if, if you're kind of reading through your book and kind of the discussions, at least on the U.S. side, um, they're obviously very scared, worried about communism. Um, they want to support their European uh, allies. Uh, but they're also very uncomfortable with outright imperialism. Um, I'm sure people will debate whether whether what they're doing still causes imperialism, but but they're certainly uncomfortable with with, with the idea of outright imperialism. Um, you know, in reading, how did U.S. officials feel about uh, what was happening in Asia, um, the negotiations to kind of have colonies become independent to end these conflicts? How, how did the U.S. officials kind of feel about them and how do they play a role in them? Well, the U.S. had a long tradition of anti-colonialism, at least uh, rhetorically. Uh, Most uh, Americans in 1945 would say that they were uh, opposed to colonialism. On the other hand, uh, two important U.S. allies in uh, in Europe, uh, the uh, Netherlands and and the French, were engaged in uh, these two of these conflicts. Uh, In the case of the French, uh, who were a much larger, more important country, they were supposed to be really the keystone of NATO, uh, they were afraid that the French would be become so embroiled in their colonial war in Indochina that they wouldn't be able to devote sufficient resources to the defense of Europe. In the case of the Netherlands, uh, the U.S. uh, initially wasn't very interested until uh, the Cold War uh, started to develop uh, and started to worry a lot of people in Washington after uh, various crises, the Berlin blockade, the Czech coup and so on in Europe. Then... Americans became, American leaders anyway, became very worried that uh, maybe the communists are going to try to take over in Asia as well. And the Dutch, the the, uh, Republic of Indonesia, the anti-colonialists, had a really lucky break. And that is that uh, right about this time, there was a communist uprising. Uh, in Indonesia, the Madian Rebellion, or at least it looked like a communist uprising. Most of the leaders were uh, self-proclaimed communists. And uh, Sukarno and the leaders of the Republic successfully put down the, uh, the rebellion. And that convinced the Americans that they were true blue anti-communists and that they were deserving of American support. And from that point on, uh, they didn't uh, 
rush into The Hague and say, all right, you've got to uh, you've got to pull out of the Netherlands Indies right now. But they, they from that point on, the U.S. put a tremendous pressure on the Dutch to come to some kind of uh, settlement in the Indies that would recognize, uh, give them some type of independence. Uh, and the U.S. was able to exert an awful lot of pressure uh, on the Dutch uh, in order to achieve this. And the Dutch just kept doing the wrong thing in, t- in terms of uh, PR. As the, the Dutch decided uh, instead of trying to uh, persuade the U.S. that they were uh, trying to come to a reasonable settlement. Instead of that, they launched another uh, full-scale offensive against the the Indonesian Republic, uh, and that convinced uh, the U.S. that the Dutch just had to agree to immediate independence for uh, most of Indonesia. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes you read, um, sometimes you read history books and um, you see all the paths that history might've taken. Um, but interestingly, upon reading your book, uh, I kind of came to the opposite conclusion, which was, oh no, this, all of this seemed inevitable um, given the positions of the various players involved. Um, but I thought I might kind of pose that, that question to you, whether you see all of these conflicts in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War as inevitable, you know, if the Europeans were less boneheaded about colonialism, if the, if the, um, some of these movements like the Communist Party or the Viet Minh were, um, I don't know, more open to compromise, if the U.S. was more willing to um, work with some of these groups or be more, pay more attention to some of these conflicts. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, from your view of the history, do you, do, do you, what were these conflicts inevitable? Was the result inevitable or were there other uh, possible paths that, uh, these well, these negotiations, these conflicts may have taken. Yes, well, I think that uh, as you suggested uh, early in these conflicts, there were lots of opportunities for compromise. Uh, maybe not in Korea. I think uh, that once you had Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il Sung uh, more or less firmly in control, that that was it. But but even there, even in Korea, uh, there were uh, political leaders, uh, at least in the South, who were uh, not aligned with Ri, who, who were still hoping for some kind of uh, agreement with, uh, with the North. Uh, in, in some of these other countries, though, uh, I think uh, if the two sides had not been as stubborn as they were, certainly in the case of uh, Vietnam, uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, made great efforts during uh, 1945 and 46 to come to some kind of agreement uh, with the French, but the French didn't really uh, think that they had to put a lot of effort into it because they really didn't take the uh, take the Vietnamese that seriously. And you see the same thing uh, in the Dutch Indies. Uh, the Dutch really don't. Uh, 
don't take the Indonesians very seriously. They don't think that um, they're going to be able to put up much much of a resistance. And even uh, in the case of Korea, for instance, when there's the uh, the story of uh, the first American troops that are sent to uh, Korea um, just after the North Korean invasion. And uh, one American general says, well, uh, we'll just send these uh, troops up to uh, to stop the North Koreans. Once the North Koreans see that uh, the Americans are there and they mean business and they're not going to run uh then uh that'll take care of the north korean invasion right there so there was there was this widespread tendency uh on the part of the americans and all the european countries to just grossly uh underestimate what they were up against uh in uh, in trying to fight uh these uh these asian uh armed forces so how do kind of looking looking forward then from this period in history you know how do these conflicts kind of set up the next uh several decades of asian history um you know i think there's been a lot of you note at the end that that eventually you have the vietnam war which is a very um which is itself another kind of very bloody conflict involving the U.S. Uh, on the other hand, you have stories, you look at this and go, apart from the Vietnam War, Asia has a lot of interstate peace. There's not a lot of interstate war in Asia. On the other hand, you have a lot of historians who look at this history and look at this region and go, but there's a lot of uh, intrastate conflict whether, where governments, whether communist, not communist, um, did a lot of violence against their own people. Um, anyway, I mean, that, that's, it's obviously a lot, a lot of debate about how peaceful Asia was, um, in the 20th, 21st century, but kind of how do these, in your view, how do these conflicts, um, Vietnam, Indonesia, Korea, China, um, how do they kind of set up the, the following decades of conflict, peace, whatever you wanted to, ever want to characterize it, um, in Asia? Well, because the, the settlements, uh, of these conflicts, uh, between 1950 and 54, you might say the settlement of the first round of these conflicts uh, didn't really settle anything. Uh, Korea and uh, Vietnam end up as divided countries so that uh, the, the governments on both sides of the divide want to right this wrong as they see it. That is, they, they feel that their countries should be united uh, but it only should be reunited under their rule. Uh, and you have the same thing with China, even though, of course, uh, the communists uh, by uh, 1950 have completely uh, gotten control of all of China on the mainland. There's still uh, the island of Taiwan. And uh, it turns out that uh, because of the outbreak of the Korean War, uh, Taiwan is able to maintain its independence for much longer than uh, anybody expected. <clears throat> so that you had this, you have this uh, flashpoint uh, in China as well as the flashpoints in uh, Korea and uh, Vietnam. 
And in the case of Indonesia, uh, Indonesia, as you pointed out, doesn't become involved in any interstate conflicts, but it there's conflict within Indonesia. A lot of the leaders of some of the outer uh, islands, uh, places that are not Java, uh, revolt against the authority of the Indonesian Republic. And uh, there are some uh, parts, little parts of the uh, Portuguese and Dutch empires that are left over uh don't become a part of Indonesia right away. So the, there's lots of occasions for conflicts there. Uh, and the other place, of course, it's, that's rife with interstate conflicts is Burma, uh, which never really, I think, I don't think you can ever pinpoint a, a time when, when Burma is uh, completely free of some kind of interstate uh, conflict you know to to ask a, a similar question but on a different country um which is namely the the united states um you know this is this is kind of the first time the u.s has really had to play uh a um you know it's play a role as a superpower play a role as a as a country that can um influence the development of the international order of countries um and of course it's it's those impulses uh during the cold war and afters lead the u.s to some uh you can say pretty bad decisions <laughs> you look at you look at vietnam you look at even recently um afghanistan and iraq and a lot of the mistakes that happened in those two uh, conflicts um you know, with the looking at this decade um, after the Second World War and the U.S.'s role in it, kind of how do you see that, I guess, sparking how the U.S. enacts kind of throughout the rest of the 20th century and 21st century? And it's as it tries to decide what kind of superpower it is. Well, of course, throughout the Cold War, the U.S. Uh, <clears throat> is reacting to what it sees as uh, aggressive uh, communism uh, spearheaded by the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China. And that's the preoccupation of the U.S. Uh, well into the, uh, to the end of the 1960s. And after that, of course, there are some experiments with uh, detente and with sort of uh, building an international order where the two uh, sides can can coexist. Uh, the U.S. recognizes, uh, finally recognizes the PRC at the end of the uh, the end of the seventies, and the uh, U.S. and Russia sign the Helsinki Accords, uh, so that um, you might say the Cold War is is stabilized, and then of course, but then the Soviet Union soon after that collapses, uh, and uh, that leads to an entirely different situation. But uh, the the cold, almost everything in American foreign policy seems to uh, be explainable with reference, in some way, with reference to the Cold War. So I think that's a that's a great place to. Uh, end our conversation. 
with Ronald Spector, author of A Constant Erupts, Decolonization, Civil War, and Massacre in Post-War Asia, 1945 to 1955. Um, obviously, the book covers such, such a long period of history, and um, there's so much interesting historical details uh, in your book about all these conflicts. Um, I did want to ask you kind of one last question, um, going beyond the book, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what do you think the next project might be? Uh, well, my book is uh, uh, for American readers, and I think a, a lot of people, uh, probably in uh, Asia and Europe as well, uh, you can get it from Amazon. Uh, and uh, hopefully it's on sale in uh, some of the larger uh, bookstores like Barnes & Noble. Uh, so that's that's probably the easiest way. Well, the easiest way is just to go online and and order it either from uh, Amazon or from Barnes and Noble. Uh, but hopefully, it's in it's still new enough that it's in some of the bookstores. I'm I'm sorry. What was the second half of your question? I'm just what's what what the next project might be. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm negotiating with my agent and my. Uh, publisher but i'm i'm thinking about writing something about uh the gi american gis and their experience in the china burma india theater uh and as a very interesting subject uh, aspect of world war ii that i don't think is has been covered very much and that's the really the first occasion in which you have uh thousands and thousands of americans uh, most of whom uh, never traveled more than 100 miles from their hometown. <clears throat> All of a sudden, they're transported uh, halfway across the world. Uh, it takes uh, at least 70 days to get to uh, India, where they're, which is the sort of entry point for the China theater. And they're encountering... <coughs> excuse me, peoples and societies that uh, they never heard of before, except in maybe a geography book. And uh, so the uh, the impact on both sides is very interesting. And of course, uh, on top of all this, they have to fight a war against the Japanese, along with these strange peoples, <coughs> excuse me, the Chinese, uh, the Indians, the Burmese, uh, and uh, they all have to win this very difficult war uh, against Japan. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook, uh, follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. You can. Uh, we hope you're sorry for listening to the Asian Books Podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for who more info is coming up next on the show. But before then, Ronald, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me.